Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, the latest police killings in Minneapolis and Chicago. The Derek Chauvin trial wraps up. Did we learn anything new that we didn't witness watching George Floyd being murdered? A bill to do a study on reparations moves forward and gain support in Congress, but will it become a reality? And the governor of California says all schools must reopen. Is this the right move? Also, President Biden announces all U.S. troops in Afghanistan will be withdrawn by September 11th. What are the wider implications and what does it mean for the legacy of U.S. interventions on foreign soil? What are other examples of uh, the aftermath of U.S. interventions and the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. As Biden slaps new sanctions on Russia, will this move fan the tensions between the two superpowers? Meanwhile, as President Biden meets with the Prime Minister of Japan, the power of China overshadows the region. China's economic growth has leaped to 18.3%. And elections in Latin America is the previous decade's sweep to the left over. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Chicago police body cam video has been released in the fatal police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. It shows him dropping a handgun and beginning to raise his hands less than a second before a Chicago police officer shot and killed him. The jumpy nighttime footage from the body cam was released yesterday. A still frame shows Adam Toledo wasn't holding anything and had his hands up when Stillman shot him in the chest on March 29th. Police say the boy had a handgun on him before the shooting. Family attorney Adina Weiss-Ortiz said the footage and video speak for themselves. Adam, during his last second of life, did not have a gun in his hand. The officer screamed at him, show me your hands. Adam complied, turned around. His hands were empty when he was shot in the chest at the hands of the officer. YCRT said it's irrelevant whether Toledo was holding a gun before he turned toward the officer. Dante Wright's family joined community leaders in demanding more severe charges against the former police officer who fatally shot the 20-year-old during a traffic stop in a Minneapolis suburb. Former officer Kim Potter made a brief court appearance via Zoom. She's charged with second-degree manslaughter. Wright's mother, Katie, said there's no justification for the shooting. Unfortunately, there's never going to be justice for us. The justice would bring our son home to us, knocking on the door with his big smile, coming in the house, oh. sit down eating dinner with us, going out to lunch, playing with his two, one-year-old, almost two-year-old son, giving him a kiss before he walks out the door. So their justice isn't even a word to me. I do want accountability. 
The former police chief said that Potter mistook her gun for her taser when she shot Wright. About a thousand people turned out last night for a fifth night of protests outside the police headquarters in the suburb Brooklyn Center. The jury in the murder and manslaughter trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin will return to the courtroom on Monday to hear closing arguments and final instructions from the judge before they begin their deliberations. Chauvin yesterday confirmed he would invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and decline to testify. The jury will be sequestered starting Monday until it reaches a decision. Indiana police say a gunman killed eight people and wounded several others before apparently taking his own life in a late-night attack at a FedEx facility near the Indianapolis airport. Police said five people were hospitalized. It was the latest in a recent string of mass shootings across the U.S., and at least the third mass shooting this year in Indianapolis alone. The chief science officer for the White House COVID-19 response team told the congressional committee that health officials are preparing for the possibility that a booster shot will be needed 9 to 12 months after people are vaccinated against the coronavirus. The CEO of Pfizer has also predicted boosters or even annual vaccinations will be needed, much like the annual flu vaccine. Sparks flew at the congressional hearing yesterday between Republican firebrand Jim Jordan and infectious disease specialist Dr. Anthony Fauci. Jordan pressed Fauci on when coronavirus restrictions can be lifted. What measure, what standard, what objective uh, outcome do we have to reach before before Americans get their liberty and freedoms back. You know, I, you're indicating liberty and freedom. I look at it as a public health measure to prevent people from dying and going to the hospital. You don't think Americans' liberties have been threatened the last year, Dr. Fauci? They've been assaulted. This will end for sure when we get the level of infection very low. It is now at such a high level there's a threat, again, of major Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci, over the last year, Americans' First Amendment rights have been completely attacked. Your right to go to church. From the, right now, we're at an unacceptably high level. We're at, on a daily basis, it's unacceptably high. What number do we get our liberties back? Tell me the number. But what does it have to be? Expire, sir. If you need to respect the chair and oh, shut oh. your mouth. That was the voice of Los Angeles Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who said the issue is emotional for her. Uh, as you know, my sister was one who was infected and died uh, from COVID-19. And all that I had to depend on was Dr. Fauci. You literally saved millions of folks who would only listen to your advice based on what was happening with the Trump administration and the president... Uh, of the free world, Mr. Trump, uh, he told us it would just disappear. And then he recommended that we use disinfectant. So we depended on you. Fauci said the U.S. shouldn't lift all restrictions before the daily level of coronavirus infections falls below 10,000. The current seven-day average tops 70,000 reported cases a day. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. 
And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, on Thursday, April 15th, Chicago officials released video of the fatal police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo, who was murdered on March 29th. The Civilian Office of Police Accountability, Chicago's police oversight agency investigating the shooting, released the videos two days after Adam's family was shown the footage and 17 days after he was killed. Body camera footage of the shooting was published along with other third-party surveillance videos. The images were gruesome. The shooting begins with about one minute and 45 seconds of police driving to the scene in the little village section of Chicago before exiting their vehicles and running down an alley. When he was shot and killed, Adam had complied with police officers orders to show his hands. His hands were empty. He was not holding a gun. The officers involved have been placed on administrative duties for 30 days in accordance with Chicago police policy. After the video's release, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the boy's family together call for people to express themselves peacefully following the incredible, painful release. Let us go to a clip now of uh, people in Chicago reacting to this shooting. It wasn't easy to watch this video at all. I cried. We had a moment of silence at my home. Members of the Little Village community expressing anger and sadness over the police shooting of Adam Toledo. And our Dana Rebic is joining us now live from Little Village with that part of our team coverage tonight. Dana. Well, there was a small protest and press conference here earlier tonight at 26th and Central Park, but right now it is relatively quiet, very calm here. These community members reacting to what they saw today and are calling for peaceful protests in the days to come. That video was fast, and to me and to my family, it was devastating. Hey, show me your head. Stop it. Stop it. When I seen that video today, something inside of me died. I couldn't even bear to watch the whole video myself. I felt like, like my childhood just died. All my childhood memories wiped from my head. A difficult day for members of the Little Village Community Council and others in this neighborhood as they process the body cam video released this afternoon showing the police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. Adam had his hands up and this type of officers are the officers that they send my community, they send killers to my community. They're showing us that that training is for shooting and killing us. They train to shoot and kill. The group is calling for Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Police Superintendent David Brown to resign over the incident. We also spoke with the gang intervention and youth development group BUILD. It is stepping in to provide support, reaching out to 2,000 youth they work with to let them know about virtual and in-person safe spaces. They will host a Zoom restorative circle and offer programming and a place for teens to come to process the release of today's videos. We see young people just sort of at all you know, everywhere in the spectrum from feeling super aggravated, angry, upset, they want justice to, I think, righty, and uh, that, of course, um, the community in Chicago responding to the police, fatal police shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. Uh, meanwhile, all this in the context of other police murder of a black youth. On Sunday, April 11th, 20-year-old Dante Wright was murdered in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, less than 10 miles away from where George Floyd was killed 
almost a year ago. Uh, now, the officer uh, involved, Kim Potter, the white uh, officer who murdered Dante, aimed a weapon at him, uh, shouting, taser, 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 but apparently she was using her gun. And a lot of people uh, who are protesting are saying they don't quite believe this story, that she m mistook a gun for a taser. This is somebody who has 26 years of experience. She has now been arrested and charged with second-degree manslaughter. But the family of uh, Dante Wright, are, they are demanding uh, much more. And also, on Thursday, testimony ended in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd. He said he will not testify in his defense in the trial and would invoke his Fifth Amendment right. Chauvin is facing charges of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter in George Floyd's death after he held his knee on Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 20 uh, nine seconds in May of 2020. Now, uh, on the domestic front, before we welcome our panelists, on a more positive note, legislation could, uh, on reparations could soon be headed to the House of Representatives floor for the first time in more than 30 years. On Wednesday, April 14th, the House Judiciary Committee voted um, to bring H.R. 40 out of committee. This is an historic advance, not accomplished since the late Representative John Conyers first introduced a reparations bill in 1989. Now, let's get some reaction uh, to that from uh, Joe Biden to Mitch McConnell. Let's go to that clip right now on reparations. If, in fact, there are ways in which to get direct payments for reparations, I want to see it. But why are we waiting around for the study? We can hit, we can deal with. Well, they're study. not mutually exclusive. You don't have to wait around. No, they're for the not study. exclusive. Conversations about reparations being paid to former slaves and the descendants of slaves began shortly after emancipation. But in recent years, as the conversation about income inequality and specifically the racial wealth gap have gained more traction, we've seen this topic get more attention. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Uh, we've tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, we've elected an African-American president. One of the ways to decrease that wealth gap and income inequality between black and white Americans, according to many activists, academics, and even lawmakers, is to move forward with reparations for the descendants of slaves. We're asking for people to understand the pain, the violence, the brutality, the chattelness of what we went through. And of course, we're asking for harmony, reconciliation, reason, to come together as Americans. A bill for a committee to study reparations was first introduced in 1989 by former Democratic Congressman John Conyers. 
while multiple members it's the late of John Conyers who introduced this bill. Now, a lot to unpack, a lot to discuss here. Let's welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. Laura is based in Mexico City, a regular contributor to America's Update or Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, War, immigration and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. And Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board, District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so um, Laura Carlson, we'll start with you because um, just a, a week ago on our, our weekly roundtable, um, the video had not been released of the killing of this young uh, Latino uh, youth, Adam Toledo, um, you know, shot in Chicago. This and also. Uh, Dante Wright hadn't happened. I mean, it seems as though week after week after week, we are d discussing uh, these police shootings. And increasingly, people are saying, look, the problem is systemic. Um, you know, we have to address the systemic issues within um, uh, law enforcement. And it's interesting to see that um, there you know, a, a very telling article has talked about a secret Facebook group where the title is America's Best Warriors Share Racist Jabs, Lies About 2020, QAnon Theories, et cetera. They're talking about the military, elites in the military, but we also know that there is a strong presence of this kind of thing in law enforcement. Uh, Laura Carlson, uh, your thoughts on all that? It's interesting that you mentioned that article, that Facebook group, because uh, in looking at these series of events, one of the first things that it made me think is that there's more than a backlash going on. There is this undercurrent of police rage at being held accountable in probably a very few cases that is actually coming out in more brutal and violent behavior than instead of improving under the scrutiny of of all the uh, public attention that's come out after the George Floyd murder with the Chauvin trial and with the fact that the press is now reporting on many of these murders. Both the Dante Wright case and the Adam Toledo cases are particularly egregious. All cases are egregious. But in the case of Adam Toledo, we're talking about a seventh grader. And when it turned around and they could see very clearly that he was complying with police orders, that he no longer had a gun in his hand, 
you know, it was it was just absolutely outrageous. We could see the indignation in Little Village, uh, a Latino community in Chicago, and we're just waiting to see what happens on that. And then the Dante Wright case, the fact that this police officer has only been charged with se- second-degree manslaughter, that they're not even to, in going to investigate a murder charge is completely unacceptable. And what her excuse is is an outright lie. And I say that not because I have any uh, evidence that's different than what's out in the public realm, but because of common sense. What we know is that... In in the pictures, there's a lot of pictures that are circulating on the internet of a taser and a handgun, and they don't look at all the same. They don't feel the same. The minute you touch that weapon, you know what it is you're touching. One is kept on the left side, another is kept on the right side. She had decades of experience as a police officer. It's just completely untenable that they're coming out with this uh, with this particular excuse. So. I think in the Chauvin trial, it will turn out that uh, there will be a conviction. Um, it's important that it's exemplary, but it's more important the uh, public awareness that's come out as a result of this. I think that the distinction that the right family member made between justice and accountability is really a good one, because she's absolutely right that we cannot see justice in these cases because they're systemic, because you can never make up for the loss of a loved one, and because uh, one case will not justice make in the, the problem of police brutality and racist policism, policing in the United States. It's structural and it goes beyond borders too. We just had a case in Mexico of a Salvadoran migrant woman who uh, also was knelt upon almost in the same way as George Floyd, and her back was broken, and she died of that and was thrown into a police truck. And these are police in Mexico, many of whom are actually trained under the Merida Initiative by U.S. police forces. So we have a system that trains power over brute force to exert social control, a completely macho system in terms of its values and its logic, no attempt to resolve problems uh, through other means other than force. And until that entire system changes, we're going to see these cases every week, as we have, unfortunately, up till now. Right, and and Jackie, thank you, Laura Carlson. Jackie Goldberg, um, a man representing the Fraternal Order of Police, was making the claim that what was this 13-year-old Adam Toledo doing out at that time um, during the night, and also making the claim and, in a way, blaming that schools had been closed uh, for this, and that had schools uh, been open, uh, perhaps Adam you know, because again, the the first instinct was to criminalize uh, Adam. Although we still have to look to see what happened. I mean, um, many analysts who looked at the video are saying it seemed as though he did have a gun. I haven't seen it 
yet and it was dropped. Uh, but the fact is, is that when he was shot and killed, he had no weapon and he had his, his hands up. But this attack um, uh, by the right on school closures, blaming school closures due to uh, COVID for a whole slew of evils. And now you have the governor of California saying that all schools must be open. And uh, Jackie, I'm putting that to you as a, a person who've worked with young people for so many years and also as a member of the uh, school board um, here in Southern California. But it's interesting how that was, the, the closing of schools was tied together with what happened to this young man as though the school closures were to blame, Jackie Goldberg. <clears throat> well, of course, uh, school closures are not to blame for anything but school closing. Um, yeah, really, it's been a very difficult year and a couple of months for every child in America who is in school age because online learning is not the same. Uh, Jackie, hold that thought. I'm getting a lot of static on, on your line, so I, I want to make sure um, our listeners hear every word. Yeah, let's try that again. Go on, Jackie Goldberg. Uh, school closures can be blamed for one thing, keeping kids at home. And that it does. It does. It keeps kids at home. And it's been a terrible uh, 14 months for most children and young adults uh, in school age uh, throughout the country. Because online learning, though it got better and better as we learned more and more how to do it, uh, is not the same as being in person, and it just isn't. And that's why school reopening is important. But the problem with most of the public saying that school opening should happen now or should happen then is, is that they're not the ones who will suffer if contagion is spread through schools. And we have a different situation really virtually in every part of every uh, Jackie, I'm sorry, I'm getting a message um, from our team that we'll need to call you back uh, to see if we could get a clearer line, okay? So um, hold that thought. We'll come back to you. Um, but meanwhile, uh, Dr. Horn, uh, bringing you into this discussion, I mean, there are few layers of what's happening here. And um, in a way, I'm glad that we're talking about the um, the reparations um you know, bill that is, well, moving slowly, <laughs> you know, it's taken all of these years um, to even get a, a, a bill considered to study uh, reparations. But all this business we're seeing about concerns about right wing and white militias being recruited into the U.S. military and also into the police force. I mean, you know, day after day after day, Dr. Horn, I can't help but feel that there is a war going on and that um, just walking around in, in, in black skin, in the case of Adam Toledo and, and brown skin, um, you know, you are immediately under threat. And the other thing, Dr. Horn, I, I wanted you to also address is this business about the attack on black women. I mean, John Cornyn questioning uh, uh, Kristen Clark. Um, you know, about a, a piece she wrote when she was a student at, at Harvard. Of course, she's being considered um, for the civil rights uh, division, uh, an important uh, division. 
And then there is a lot being made of um, Patrice Cullors, who is one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, for uh, purchases she made for her family or, or members of, of her family. And one has to wonder if it was somebody else, if these attacks would not um, would have been made. And also the fact of uh, some media outlets irresponsibly uh, putting in her address when we know about the threats and the COINTELPRO operations happening against Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's not to excuse anything, but it's just to say that, it, it, to me, it just seems like a piece of a whole. Uh, Dr. Horn. Well, you're obviously correct, and the situation, believe it or not, may, may be worse than you portrayed it. If you paid attention to the hearing yesterday at the House Intelligence Committee, you would have noticed that the Republicans, particularly Congressman Devin Nunes of California, were in solidarity with the January 6, 2021 combatants grilling the FBI as to why these folks were being investigated and scrutinized. And perhaps even more alarming is the fact that some of our friends on the left take a parallel position. They seem to feel that if you crack down on these insurrectionists, that forms a pretext for cracking down on the left. I'm happy that these folks were not around in the mid-19th century because they would have opposed cracking down on pro-slavery elements because that would have probably meant, in their estimation, cracking down on anti-slavery elements. But I think it's also troubling to note that there is a more general problem uh, which is that oftentimes uh, people of color, particularly black people, are expected to accept the liberal line that the Constitution of the 18th century will rescue us and do not recognize that the United States was designed as sort of a precursor of the European Union for whites only. And the rest of us were designated as slaves, serfs, and the dispossessed in the case of Native Americans. And it ignores the, le the lesson of history, which is that our struggle has to, in order to be successful, must be global. That's the struggle. That's the import of the civil rights movement. That's the import of the movement against slavery. And so I think that, at least with regard to the previous point concerning this solidarity uh, across right-wing lines of elected officials, military men and women, and insurrectionists, that perhaps that is implicitly being understood by some in the Democratic Party leadership in Washington, because right now I think it helps to explain why they're swinging for the fences, why they're trying to move forward not only on reparations legislation, but on D.C. statehood, on reforming the high court, the Supreme Court, including uh, stripping the U.S. Supreme Court of jurisdiction on certain matters uh, with regard to this infrastructure bill, and also pushing Kristen Clark as Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, because I think that they recognize that as early as November 2022, the party of whiteness, the GOP, will probably be making a comeback in the midterm elections and will be baying for blood and will be seeking to turn the clock all the way back, which is why we have to make progress right now. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, we all have to keep that in mind, uh, given all of the voter suppression laws that are being put in place now, over 200, close to 300, apparently, across the nation in preparation for the midterm election. So everybody out there, uh, pay attention, because it's a very dangerous uh, situation in terms of what Dr. Horn uh, just outlined. And I'll have to say that it, it was I was really happy to hear uh, our Congresswoman uh, Maxine Waters, we could always rely on her, known by young people as Auntie Maxine, telling Jim Jordan yesterday to shut your mouth. <laughs> A lot of people um, were very pleased to hear that. Um, Jackie Goldberg, um, we understand your line is a lot clearer. So back to you now on your uh, thoughts. You were talking, we were talking about the fact that the uh, police union was trying to blame school closures for the police killing of uh, Adam Toledo, if one is to um, accept that, and, and the governor of California calling now for all schools uh, to be open. But uh, Jackie Goldberg, just your thoughts on, on that, but also this systemic um, issue and problem that we are facing. And I was also reading another article uh, in Vox that says, well, it's all well and good to uh, penalize people who've made racist comments, but that a lot of these comments happen behind closed doors and happen privately among people who uh, know each other, and that for the most part, people don't stand up against it. But Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, uh the biggest blame that is being placed is now on teacher unions. Uh, the teacher unions are the problem, and it's a very anti-union kind of discussion of school closure and school opening. But what people uh, did not realize is, is that the difficulty for school opening and school closure is different in every part of every city and every town, because in some places there's a mom, a dad, and kids, and there's not much risk of the kids going back to school because mom and dad have been vaccinated. In other parts of the same city or in other parts of the country, mom and dad live with great uncle and abuela and abuelo or grandpa and grandma in multi-generational families. Now, children do not necessarily show symptoms when they first are infected, which means that children could spread to each other at school the infection, take it home, and then get the older members of the family who have not yet been vaccinated uh, uh, ill or even cause their death. So this is not a small and uncomplicated question when you're dealing with the health of individuals and literally life and death struggles. So as teacher unions and other unions, by the way, insisted that we be more sure that we are taking care of the health of everybody, the kids and the adults on campuses, uh, the right wing began to claim that teachers didn't want to teach, they liked being home, they were getting paid for doing nothing. Well, if you know any teachers who did went from being uh, in person to online in two days, you know that most teachers in America have actually been working many, 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 many more hours than they did when they were in the classroom because they would had to reinvent everything that they were teaching so that they could do it to children who were online. And then, of course, you have the problems that come from having differential ability to get online because big companies like Verizon and, and others did not, AT&T, did not bother building out the infrastructure for Internet in low-income communities. So even though they had a device and a hotspot, it was very, very hard for them 
to be able to stay, get online and stay online because the infrastructure was not in their neighborhood. So I would say to you that uh, this excuse about if the schools were open, the uh, young 13-year-old wouldn't have been outside is kind of nonsense, not kind of, is exactly nonsense. It's a part of blaming somebody else for your own behavior, and that's become the whole the whole spectrum of policing. There's no accountability. It is always someone else's fault when I shoot and kill, when I, a white man police officer, shoot and kill, or a white woman police officer shoot and kill a kid of color or an adult of color with, with who is unarmed. It's always someone else's fault. It's never my fault. And that's the whole problem that we're facing here. So at some point when accountability begins, and if it begins with this, and it's not just a one-off, then you might see some actual change in behavior because, you know, human beings are human beings, and if people know that their behavior, they will be held accountable for it, that something will happen if they kill an unarmed person, if they kill an unarmed person, something's actually going to happen to you, then I think you might see behavior change. But you're not going to see any behavior change without accountability. I don't care. You can pass laws. You can do retraining. You can do uh, all kinds of things. Nothing is going to change until shooting an unarmed person of color has consequences. Absolutely. Well, on that note, a very passionate uh, note there, we are going to pause for our station break. And when we return, we will continue a lot happening on the international front with our panelists, our distinguished panelists for our weekly roundtable, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Lean on me when you're not Fantastic. The great, uh, late Bill Withers, Lean on Me. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. I really want to lift up um, all of my colleagues here at KPFK, the uh, skeleton paid staff, as well as all of the unpaid volunteers that are doing uh, just such incredible uh, work with very, very few resources. And to remind you to go to kpfk.org and pledge your support uh, so that we can uh, keep it going, uh, not only for this generation, but for future generations. Um, you could also check out the Sojourner Truth um, on Facebook. If you're a member of Facebook, just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott and our handle and Twitter at So True Radio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud today. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Southern Illinois. Let's give a shout out to Southern Illinois today. Internationally, I'd like to give a shout out um, to our listeners in St. Vincent and Grenadines and, and Barbados, my home island. And also just to say that our hearts are going out to the residents 
residents of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, 20,000 of which had to be evacuated uh, because of a volcano that is continually exploring there. And then the smoke from that uh, spreading across uh, the region, including my home island of Barbados that has been blanketed with um, the soot uh, from the smoke and really impacting uh, people's health. And otherwise, you know, a lot of these islands depend on tourism, so they're taking a big hit. So uh, if you go onto the um, the website of the consulates for St. Vincent and the Grenadines, as well as Barbados, there likely will be uh, information you could find out about what you can do to assist um, the region that is so very hard hit. I will also do some digging myself and, and be able to post online or uh, to announce it next time we're on the air where people uh, can indeed uh, go to uh, participate. And I also, as a couple of public service announcements here, want to remind people that the National Welfare Rights Union, they're holding yet another uh, Truth Commission. Uh, today, um, we charge genocide, poverty in all its forms is violence. Um, they're going to be focusing on the Washington, D.C., uh, Maryland area where campaigners will be speaking out um, uh, of on these issues and uh, we have you can go to the National Welfare Rights Union website to get some information on that also the General Baker Center uh, their website in Detroit I think they have some information and we do as well on the Sojourner Truth um, website and that is later on uh, today I think it starts at four o'clock uh, Pacific time seven o'clock East Coast time and also this coming weekend the California Poor People's Campaign is presenting the power to heal, ending inequality in healthcare. They want to end inequality in healthcare. They're going to be showing um, a shortened version of the film, The Power to Heal. There will be a discussion with the filmmaker, Barbara Burney, Dr. Chandra Ford, who is the executive director of the Center for the Study of Racism and Public Health out of the School of Public Health at UCLA, as well as a representative from the California Nurses Association. Association, um, the Home Care uh, and Long-Term Care Workers Union, and other uh, panelists. That's going to be this Sunday, uh, April 20, um, April 18th, from 3 to 5 o'clock. And please go to the KPFK website. KPFK is a, a media sponsor for this event. Go to the KPFK website to get more information. So I'm going to be participating, and I hope uh, to uh, see and uh, that many of you there. We're now going to return to our weekly roundtable and focusing on our international front. On Wednesday, April 14th, U.S. President Joe Biden announced that he plans to fully withdraw troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, ending 20 years of U.S. military occupation. About 2,500 U.S. troops are in Afghanistan, uh, the lowest number since 2001, this according to CNN. At the height of the occupation in 2011, there were 98,000 U.S. troops in the country. But early in the week, uh, we spoke to uh, Matthew Ho, who um, told us in no uncertain terms that the numbers, there are far greater numbers of um, uh, not uh, military, but people who are hired uh, by the military who are now in Afghanistan and who will 
will remain in Afghanistan. So we'll try to get more information and get to the bottom of that. While announcing the move, President Biden said the United States cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create the ideal conditions for withdrawal and expecting a different result. Um, he said it's time to end America's longest war. So that's something that we're going to be discussing in the next round to see, uh, have our panelists weigh in on that. But meanwhile, tensions between the United States and Russia continue to heat up. On th Tuesday, April 13th, President Biden called Russian President Vladimir Putin to demand that he de-escalate tensions with Ukraine, among other things they discuss. This amid what some are claiming to be the largest buildup of Russian forces on Ukraine's borders since Crimea joined the Russian Federation in 2014. Now, so it was reported uh, that during the phone call, Joe Biden proposed a meeting in a third country in the coming months, potentially setting up the first U.S.-Russian presidential summit uh, since Putin held talks with Donald Trump in Helsinki in 2018. Um, but uh, the Putin is saying not so fast. He's saying it's a bit too early uh, for these discussions to happen. Let us go to a, a clip now of uh, Biden uh, talking about Russia. We were looking very carefully, now that we had access to all the data, and at the issues that to assess Russia's role and then determine what response we would make. When we spoke again this week, I told him that we would shortly be responding in a measured and a proportionate way because we had concluded that they had interfered in the election and solar winds was totally out of the uh, inappropriate. Today, I've approved several steps, including the expulsion of several Russian officials as a consequence of their actions. I've also signed an executive order authorizing new measures, including sanctions to address specific harmful actions that Russia has taken against U.S. interests. I was clear with President Putin that we could have gone further, but I chose not to do so. To be, I chose to be proportionate. The United States is not looking to kick off a cycle of, ex of escalation and conflict with Russia. We want a stable, predictable relationship. If Russia continues to interfere with our democracy, I'm prepared to take further actions to respond. It is my responsibility as President of the United States to do so. But throughout our long history of competition, our two countries have been able to find ways to manage tensions and to keep them from escalating out of control. There are also areas where Russia and the United States can and should work together. For example, in the earliest days of my administration, we were able to move quickly to extend for five years the New START Treaty and maintain that key element of nuclear stability between our nations. And that was in the interest of the United States, of Russia, and quite frankly, of the world. And we got it done. When I spoke to President Putin, I expressed my belief that communication between the two of us personally and directly was to be essential in moving forward to a more effective relationship, and he agreed on that point. To that end, I propose that we meet in person this summer in Europe for a summit to address a range of issues facing both of our countries. We'll be looking very carefully now that we had access to all the data. 
All righty. So um, there you go. And uh, it remains to be seen. Um, President uh, Biden laying out what he thinks is a measured approach um, to uh, Russia, but many concerned that this is uh, fanning the, the flames of hostility uh, between the world's two superpowers. And um, actually, uh, Laura Carlson, let's start with you on this, uh, not only on U.S.-Russia uh, relations, but also the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. There's a lot to unpack there. Certainly, the U.S. has had not a stellar record, to say the least, when they go into these countries, and things seem to be far worse by the time they leave, actually. And the other thing I'm hoping that you will comment on, uh, Laura Carlson, is what's happening in Latin America, because uh, some a decade ago or so, we saw a shift to the left, and now you have elections in Ecuador and also in Peru. And I'm wondering uh, your thoughts on those results as well, Laura Carlson. Thanks, Margaret. Well, in Afghanistan, I think one of the key phrases of Biden's was only the Afghans have the right and responsibility to lead their country. We have to remember that this withdrawal by September is actually an extension of a withdrawal prom promised by Donald Trump, and there is no way to say exactly what will happen. Uh, it's very clear that the United States has a tremendous amount of responsibility for the mess that it's in right now. The invasion of October 2001 was absolutely insane and completely unjustified, and the results since then have been uh, more than 150,000 Afghans killed, uh, the vast majority of them civilians. That's one thing that really has to be taken into account. And we can't just look at the death toll either because the number of refugees and the degree of poverty and deterioration in that country is extreme and causes human suffering on a daily basis. Uh, the, the skeptics about whether or not also this will really mean a complete withdrawal, as we talked about Ma uh, Matthew Ho, you know, saying that there's still, there's still NATO and U.S. special operations teams, CIA teams. Biden is reserving the right to carry out airstrikes and raids again in Afghanistan. So that's, that's certainly very iffy. Um, the Congresswoman Barbara, Barbara Lee's was the only person who voted against the Afghanistan invasion. And one of the things she said is, let us not become the evil we deplore at that time. Well, it's very clear that, you know, we are the evil we deplore in terms of creating this endless like cycle of war. And it's not entirely clear that this measure will end it. What's important to take into account is what a huge business it is. We're talking about, according to a Brown University study, some $2.3 trillion spent on this war over the last 20 years. And, of course, most of that goes to U.S. Uh, defense and intelligence companies that are living off this kind of permanent war that kills so many civilians. When you look at the New York Times chronology of U.S. involvement in the war, the other thing that really jumps out is the fact that uh, no one has ever really known what winning looks like. During the entire time of waging this war, uh, there were basically no benchmarks, 
and again, it's an indication that these endless wars are endless because <coughs> they keep churning money into that military-industrial complex. So finally, on Afghanistan, I mean, the military solution that the Pentagon has been pushing all these years has basically taken off the table any kind of a diplomatic solution or the ability to build peace there. And that creates a legacy that will be very, very difficult to overcome, both for the United States and, but especially for the Afghans. In terms of Russia, I think it's really important for information to come out because when they talk about protecting the U.S. democracy, it's really the U.S. responsibility to protect the democracy. So we need to know exactly what they're talking about here and what measures need to be taken. As far as these sanctions, many people, including the Washington Post, are indicating that they're more bite than bark. And you can see that Biden is trying to walk this fine line between the need to cooperate and the need to punish in terms of image, which will actually probably just cause the Russians to create more clandestine ways of intervening. Um, in terms of upping the ante with the growing tensions, that's always a dangerous thing with an enemy that's that powerful, with two countries that are that powerful at loggerheads, and it's not a, a, a diplomatic path to, to use the kind of bravado that's likely to provoke reactions. What we're seeing in, in Latin America with the elections in Ecuador and Peru on April 11th is fascinating, confusing in many ways, but essentially in both countries, uh, although in Ecuador we have the left losing, the, the forces of Rafael Correa um, being defeated by four percentage points by a banker, uh, a very hardcore neoliberal leader who is taking office, Guillermo Lasso, and in Peru we have a second round with a, a leftist taking a clear lead, Pedro Castillo, a union member from the rural areas of Peru, and then uh, Keiko Fujimori, who's the daughter of the president who's in jail for corruption and herself accused of corruption also going into that round and strongly supported. So what we see is a neoliberal system that is attempting to preserve and reinvent itself through the yeah. elections in both these countries, uh, and that's playing out in strange and fascinating ways. Right. So in, in Peru, you have the school teacher versus the um, political princess, right? And yeah, uh, quite yeah. a different story than happening um, in, in Ecuador. Thank you for that. And Jackie Goldberg on, on this section here, I mean, there, there, there is more in addition to what's happening with the U.S. Uh, Russia. I mean, this past Sunday, um, uh, there was a, a, an explosion at a nuclear facility in Iran, Iran blaming Israel um, and basically everybody's saying all eyes point to Israel on this, and there's concern of that undermining um, the U.S. Um, discussion um, with Iran, uh, trying to salvage that uh, nuclear um, treaty there. Meanwhile, Iran is now enriching uranium up to 60 percent, its, its highest level ever, this according to uh, AP. So quite a lot going on um, there on the international front. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your comments on any of it? Well, uh, I think, of course, 
it would be fair to say that Israel and Iran are having a shadow war. Uh, they each are doing things to the other that's uh, uh, kind of uh, trying to provoke the other, and I think it is not entirely impossible in my way of thinking that Israel had something to do uh, with that nuclear site uh, uh, explosion. It wouldn't, bother, it wouldn't surprise me at all, and it, it particularly wouldn't surprise me given that the United States has made no comment about that accusation. Usually uh, the United States is quick to side with Israel and say, oh, no, no, you're just, you know, making this up. So the, the, the problem really is a, an issue uh, that it will uh, not end until the United States uh, stops permitting it to be a proxy war for other things that the United States is currently, currently involved in. I think the uh, other issue that I wanted to talk about a little bit is that canal in the Crimea because what we, we're seeing, I think, uh, as they move in, you know, Russia, uh, Lenin had a, had a, had a, had a, uh, a quote that said, uh, probe with bayonets if you encounter mush, advance. If you hit steel, retreat. And I think that's exactly what uh, Russia's doing by moving troops into the Ukraine. They're going to find out, can we get away with something? Uh, because there's a waterway um, uh, between uh, the Russian-occupied Crimea and Russian territory that they believe is a problem because they're not getting water. Ukraine has cut the water off, and so there's arable land that's drying up, and uh, Russia's spending a lot of rubles to get water there. So I think what's happening is, is that Russia's trying to see, well, can we build a bridge? Can we build a waterway? Can we do things that re uh, in reinform our desire to hold on to Crimea, or is the NATO and United States going to push back? And I think that's what this, uh, this is about. I don't think they intend to invade unless they believe that the United States will not do anything about it. Right. Yeah, thank you for that, Jackie Goldberg. And, and Dr. Horn, I mean, on um, China and Iran, they've signed a major 25-year agreement to enhance comprehensive cooperation in a range of fields, including uh, trade. China is investing $400 billion in Iran over 25 years. And also, the Chinese economy uh, let what grew like 18.3%. So all of this uh, has... Uh, part of the context of all of these international issues we're discussing, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, not only that, but Beijing apparently sees the United States in inevitable decline. And as a result, quite strikingly, thus far, China is not going to participate in this climate change summit that Mr. Biden is proposing. Not only that, but China's moving to create a so-called digital currency which will not only challenge Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, but would also challenge uh, the dollar. I think that it's apparent that Washington needs Russia to confront China, just like in 1971, the United States needed China to confront Moscow. But the problem is there's such deep-seated anti-Moscow sentiment in this country, left, right, and center, it's difficult for Mr. Biden to pivot. And so he's trying to go in both ways. On the one hand, he imposes sanctions. On the other hand, he says that there should be a summit between Moscow and Washington. I'm not sure if that's going to work. And I think that someone should hand Mr. Biden a copy of this new book by the Stanford scholar Catherine Stoner entitled Russia Resurrected. Now, she's not pro-Putin, but she's just looking at the facts. 
And even though she doesn't say this, I would say that part of the issue is that the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago fundamentally meant no more Moscow subsidies to Uzbeks and Tajiks and Moldavars and all the rest. And that has allowed Russia to build up its economy to where now it's one of the leading controllers of foreign reserves on planet Earth. And I think that perpetually there's an underestimation of Russia's economic role, which is even more curious since the United States is dependent upon Russia with regard to the space station. The Afghan crisis, it seems to me, is not about to end anytime soon. And contrary to what Mr. Biden said, actually the roots go back 40 years when the now-sainted Jimmy Carter uh, interfered to destabilize a left-leaning regime, made an alliance with religious zealots, including the now-hated uh, uh, Osama bin Laden, and that caused the left-leaning regime to fall, bringing the Taliban to power, which then led to, we are told, September 11, 2001, and then a U.S. invasion. But don't expect U.S. troops to be disappearing anytime soon. They'll be reappearing in Afghanistan as contractors. They'll be offshore uh, launching attacks in the Afghan territory. So this crisis will not be ending anytime soon. Right. Well, on that note, I'm so sorry to say that we are out of time. Another fascinating uh, roundtable. Thank you, Dr. Gerald Horn, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg. Uh, I'd like to thank um, our team. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Keanu Williams, our assistant producer, Romero uh, Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. And you all, please stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Everybody's talking, nothing real is happening, cause nothing is